musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I get into today's program, I first want to thank This Afternoon and Starshine, both of whose donations have made them lifetime members of the Salon's forums. And I hope that it's okay to use the screen names that they chose on these forums, uh, where I look forward to interacting with them and our other fellow Saloners this summer as I uh, begin to discuss some things that I'll be bringing up on the next podcast. Well, unless I change my mind, of course. (laughs) Before I introduce today's program, however, I first would like to mention a man who has been in many of our thoughts these past few days. I'm speaking of Muhammad Ali who died just a few days ago. Since I gave my own views about this great man a few months ago, I won't repeat them now. What I want to do instead is to take a moment here to pass along to our younger saloners, and uh, hopefully one day even to my own grandchildren should they ever stumble across these podcasts. What I want to pass along is to give you a little sense of how deeply ingrained Muhammad Ali was in the minds of us older people. Ali was born in 1942, the same year that I was born, and so we lived through the same times, but from very different perspectives. In the summer of 1960, I had just graduated from high school and was looking forward to going to college in the fall. And in that same summer, Ali won the light heavyweight gold medal at the Rome Olympics. Now in the small Midwestern farm town where I was living at the time, There was only one black family that lived there, and so we really had no idea of the kind of prejudice that Ali had been forced to live with. To us, uh, well, he'd won the gold medal for the United States, and that was enough for us. Muhammad Ali, who was still using his slave name at the time, became one of our heroes. Now, I need to say something here also about the sport of boxing in the late 1950s and early 1960s. The only way, I guess, to do this is maybe for you to try this someday. Put your phone and all the rest of your electronic devices in a drawer, disconnect completely from the Internet, and uh, limit your television intake to only a single black-and-white channel coming to you over an antenna on your roof. And if you do that for a day or two, you'll get an idea of uh, what it was like to live back in 1960. In short, there wasn't much going on. In fact, AM radio was still a big deal, and everywhere you went in the summertime, you'd hear a baseball game on the radio, and uh, that would be in the background no matter where you were. And those baseball announcers couldn't say enough good things about this Muhammad Ali and his amateur boxing career. It seemed as if everybody was talking about this new sports hero who was about to become a professional boxer. Now, I confess to no longer being interested in boxing, but back then, when radio was king, there would be two or three big boxing matches each year for which our entire family would gather around the radio to listen to. There wasn't a single classmate of mine who didn't know about Joe Lewis, Ezard Charles, Jersey Joe Walcott, Rocky Marciano, Floyd Patterson. Even my mother uh, knew who those people were, because boxing, at the time was uh, probably a bigger sport in this country than was professional football. So when Muhammad Ali came on the scene, we were already interested in the sport of boxing. 
By 1966, Ali was the world's heavyweight champion and on a path to break every boxing record that there was. But then came his moment of truth. The American war in Vietnam had just started to become the main story on the front pages of our newspapers, and the American government, in its infinite wisdom, decided to draft Ali into the army. And you can find this story in hundreds of places, so I'm not going to repeat it all here. At the time, I was in officer candidate school and uh, knew that before the following year was over that I would find myself in Vietnam trying to kill people with whom I had no quarrel. And so it was during the summer of 1967, just about the time that our ship arrived off the coast of Vietnam, I read in the Navy Times that Ali had been found guilty of draft evasion and had famously said, and I quote, Man, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam? while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights. And at that very same time, the young people in San Francisco were experiencing what was called the Summer of Love. But four years later, in the summer of 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled to overturn Ali's conviction which allowed him to return to boxing, where he ultimately prevailed, well, beyond anyone's wildest predictions. That decision by the Supreme Court also brought out all of the reasons that Ali had been right about the war ever since it began. And that discussion got a lot of us who were still in military uniforms to begin to feel a little more brave about expressing our own anti-war feelings. After all, we thought... If Muhammad Ali was willing to give up the world heavyweight title, what kind of cowards would we be if we didn't protest the war knowing that a bad fitness report was probably the worst thing that would happen to us? And it was about that time that thousands of us threw our service medals on the steps of federal buildings all over the country. And to no small degree, it was Muhammad Ali whose example gave us the courage to speak our own minds. But what was it about this man that has so inspired so many people for so long? Well, I can only speak for myself, but he just seemed to me to be what I think of as one of us. I wish I could explain what I meant by that, but it's just something that I've felt from time to time. I can clearly remember a night about 20 years ago in a Lisbon restaurant. I was having dinner with some friends when a woman diner walked by our table. And as she was leaving, our eyes happened to meet. It only lasted for no more than one or two seconds at the most. But again, I can't really explain this, but time seemed to stop during the moment our eyes met. And somehow I understood that she was one of us and that I was one of us. It was as if we had known one another for centuries. And in that brief moment, we exchanged thousands of stories with one another. And then she was gone. I never saw her again, but to this day I know that she was one of us. And that is how I also feel about Muhammad Ali. He was one of us, and we will surely miss him. Now, if you hang in here with me, (laughs) I promise you that we're going to have some fun before this podcast is over. But as an interesting coincidence, two days before Muhammad Ali died was the second anniversary of someone else who was one of us our dear Sasha Shulgin. 
And I'd already located the talk that we're about to listen to uh, when I learned of Muhammad Ali's death. But rather than dwell on the deaths of these two wonderful men, it seemed more appropriate to focus on their lives and what they brought to the world and what they left here for us. Now, it was about a year after I started doing these podcasts that I got a call from Rob Montgomery, who many of our fellow saloners know quite well. Rob was one of the four people behind the legendary Palenque and Theobotany conferences, as well as uh, being the cornerstone of the Botanical Preservation Corps, which, among other things, produced several psychedelic conferences. And Rob asked if I'd be interested in playing some of the talks from those conferences that he'd helped to produce. I, of course, said yes, uh, and then, <laughs> well, then proceeded a couple of years of random emails between us confirming our desire to play some of these talks in the salon, but somehow life seems to have gotten in our way, and Rob and I lost contact. Now, uh, enter fellow saloner Phil B. About a year ago, Phil sent me a digital copy of one of the tapes from a conference that Rob produced in 1996, but unfortunately, the quality was too poor to use. Not to be deterred, Phil uh, bought some better equipment and then proceeded to digitize not only the talk that we're about to listen to right now, but quite a few more that we're going to be hearing here in the salon this summer. And so today we begin with a talk that Sasha Shulgin gave in the fall of 1996, and uh, which, uh, I believe, is the very best audio-only talk that you're going to hear from Sasha. You see, not only does he not use prepared slides or overhead projections that were in the fashion at the time, there was also no whiteboard available either. And so today we begin with the talk that Sasha Shulgin gave in the fall of 1996, and uh, which, I believe, is the very best audio-only talk that you're going to hear from Sasha. You see, uh, not only does he not use any prepared slides or overhead projections, as were the fashion at the time, there was no whiteboard available either. So, while it sounds as if Sasha was actually drawing diagrams of molecules on the board, he wasn't. He was instead drawing pictures in the air with his hands. In the program notes for today's podcast, which you know you can find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've included a picture that I took of Sasha on the day before Halloween in 1999. And while at the time I was disappointed to not to have captured a better photo of Sasha's face, well, it's a really good picture to show you how he built molecules in the air with his hands while he was talking. In past podcasts, you've heard me talk about the times, uh, particularly in Palenque, when a small group of us would have a leisurely week or so to sit around the pool and talk with people like Sasha. And you've also heard me say that even though I had two semesters of organic chemistry in college, the only thing that I remembered about my chemistry class was that while I recognized the buzzwords, I could no longer tell you what they meant. Nonetheless, it was always such a pleasure to sit around a table with some of the world's leading chemists who were quizzing Sasha about one thing or another, and even without understanding in any detail at all uh, what he was talking about, well, it was still great fun to listen to him talk. By the way, uh, when you hear people talking about Sasha and you hear them say something about his dirty pictures, you need to know <laughs> that what's being referred to are the chemical drawings of psychedelic molecules, which, uh, as you also know, the uptight governments of this world think of as dirty. 
Now, I realize that this is clear to all of us who knew Sasha and attended his talks, but our numbers seem to be thinning these days, and so I want to make sure that those who come after us know uh, exactly what kind of dirty pictures Sasha was into. (laughs) Now, uh, let's listen to what I think is the best talk by Sasha Shulgin that you're ever going to hear. Again, uh, Alexander Shulgin, or Sasha Shulgin, as he's known to his many, many friends, a number growing all the time, certainly needs no introduction here in his home court in the Bay Area, but uh, I'd like to give him a little one anyway. Um, I, I remember some people have the expression, I think uh, the common expression is, run it up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes. Is that the way it's said? And so... Um, I, I have often used Sasha as a sounding board for ideas because he's he's able to more or less find problems with just about any theory you can come up with, no matter how well thought out or intricate. The more intricate, the more problems, of course. Um, so I say, you know, run it past Sasha and see how many holes you can poke in it. And uh, it's, he's uh, uh, very good at that. He's really got an excellent analytical faculty, great sense of humor, and uh, we've been really fortunate to have him participate recently in our Botanical Preservation Corps events. And, of course, you all know about his publications, PCOL and then the long-awaited TCOL, which we're all eagerly hoping to see. And PCOL, of course, has really had a profound effect on what William Burroughs was fond of calling the narcotics industry on all levels, I think, as, as he put it, from the uh, bottom to the top, so to speak meaning uh, the narcotics industry writ large, including also the um, police complex. And so um, I asked Sasha for his talk, uh, the title for his talk this time, and so he very coyly came up with a very specific and and uh, uh, detailed title, phenethylamines and tryptamines. And so once again, I'm as much in the dark as you are as to exactly uh, just what we're, we're about to hear. And so I'll let him tell you, Alexander Shulgin. I I thank you very much. It's a great welcome. And it's a great pleasure to be here. And it's a great audience, and I've heard it laughing at the right time, which is a very great pleasure. (laughs) I was going to put together, uh, I was just asked a moment ago if I had any slides, and I was toying with the idea of putting together a small uh, set of 40, 50 slides. Um, I have a knack of using a term which I happen to enjoy called dirty pictures. These are benzene rings with chains on them and naphthol rings and indole rings and quinoline rings. And uh, I, I like throwing them around because it's easier, in a sense, to to use a, a symbol as a definition of a chemical or of a drug. And this this transformation that's necessary to look at a, at a white crystalline material and say this is this is mescaline, 
Or look at a picture, what I call a dirty picture, a ring with some methoxy groups on it and a chain and a nitrogen hanging out there somewhere. And say, this is the dirty picture of mescaline. This is what mescaline would look like if you get rid of the other 10 to the 25th things and have only one thing left. And I had a microscope that was big enough to see it. That would be the structure of it. And uh, people say, well, you don't get technical, don't get into chemistry. I mean, tell, tell me about mescaline. And my whole world has been, yes, telling about mescaline, but also telling about chemistry and trying to bridge, in a sense, what a thing is, what it looks like, long needles, white, sharp edges, certain angles known with great accuracy, and certain action in the body if it's absorbed and dissolved and goes into the correct areas. And yet a dirty picture that lets the chemist know what is attached to what at the atom level, the five balls in the bottom of the basket level that was talked about yesterday, uh, at that level, so that if you want to make something that is not quite mescaline, you know that you can, in a sense, pull that off and put that on, and you get a quite nice white crystal, different angles, different things, different solubilities, and very often different action in the body. So, in keeping with the marvelous uh, example that was given by Carrie yesterday, Harry Mullis, I threw out these hypothetical 52 slides, and I think I will do as he did, come off the wall and just sort of talk about phenethylamines and tryptamines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I have one more advantage over him. He had to leave Georgia and come to Berkeley to find a life. Uh, I was born in Berkeley. I found a life there. <laughs> at the <laughs> All right, we've had a lot. I'm going, to, I'm going to fly in the face of what's gone on yesterday and what will undoubtedly continue and conclude tomorrow, in which everyone talks about a plants and plant teachers and plant entities and spirits and these magical things that they really are. And after all, the second half of the title of the, of the whole meeting is, is botany. So I guess that's quite appropriate. And indeed, uh, plants are often felt as being superior teachers. They're natural. Um, and they uh, grow everywhere, they're available, sometimes they're scarce. Uh, but we've heard a few things that give me some pause about the, the some of the virtues that are, are, are always attributed to them. They're natural, yes, but they are natural. And how do you modify a plant away from nature? Well, you have to go into chemistry to do that. So uh, I heard, for example, a, a nice talk by Jason, which he talked about the composition of, of um, ayahuasca, and he said, I aside a number of these sort of things, at least it gives us a picture of how what's in there and what does what. And I hear things like the DMT level in the various drinks of ayahuasca ranges from 12% to 0%. And the harmine level ranges from 30% to 50%. And sometimes there is a harmaline present and sometimes not. And I'm wondering if not... Uh, a, it's a it's a variable teacher. I mean, how do you you're learning that the teacher has different faces, and I don't know if you can really sometimes talk to the same teacher twice because you are getting different admixtures, you're getting different things added to what. It turns out we're not quite sure what the plant was that went in there. I was told it was such and such, but it really we've named it so and so because it's not that, but it's something else. And uh, there's an element of of uncertainty that uh, I feel is no more than if you go into chemistry, but not necessarily less. Chemistry has its uncertainties, believe me. So in a sense, I believe that chemicals can also be very good teachers, as good teachers as plants. And uh, they also contain impurities. <laughs> um, they also contain impurities, and sometimes you know what they are, and sometimes you don't. You have the argument, for example, I hear it both ways. It's a little bit tricky. Uh, 
these little impurities that might occur as uh, side products in this alkaloid are the very things that give it color and give it personality and make it something special. Then the next sentence will be, these little purity, impurities are there in such small amounts that they can't contribute significantly to the effect of the plant. So in essence, if you want to say this is different than that because of impurities, you got it made. You want to say this is the same as that in spite of the impurities, you've got it made. Well, we have impurities in organic chemicals too, believe me. And uh, the uh, you have the advantage of knowing what they are. You do have the somewhat of an advantage in that you probably have a better consistency in making a material in the laboratory, although believe me, I have had experiences in which that is not so. I made a sample of 2CE many, many years ago. And uh, this, this, I'm getting ahead of the story, but I'm used to that. Um, a sample of 2CE, uh, which I got a beautiful white crystal solid, and it's a remarkable chemical. I wrote a, a better part of a chapter on that. And then I said, oh, about a few, maybe 10 years ago, I would like to make another sample of that, you know, and just to, you know, consistency, at least I can get more of it and explore it further if that were my want. And I made it, and I got the penultimate compound, beautiful orange crystalline solid, the right melting point, right infrared, GCMS, right on the money. I reduced it, it reduced beautifully to a white crystalline solid, and it was not 2CE. It had the mass spec of 2CE, the infrared was totally different, and I could not interconvert the two. To this day, I don't know what went wrong. I mean, here's a good example of getting the wrong plant out of the wrong part of the wrong garden, getting the wrong chemical out of the right reaction in the wrong way. And so you cannot just assume because it's a discipline that has been worked into a technology that is so sophisticated that things can't go wrong. Believe me, they do, and they do with sad, sad regularity. Okay, now I'm going to get into hand. I, I was asked, do I want a chalkboard? Sure, I love chalkboards. But then I stand at the chalkboard and I never wear a microphone, so I can't be heard. And also get in the habit, if I have five erasers at the chalkboard and one podium, five trips to the podium brings five erasers back to the podium and I have no eraser at the chalkboard. And the chalk is back here, so I end up coming back for the chalk, taking five erasers over. I spill them and I, I just didn't do it here. So no, no slides, no chalkboard. I will use, I will use hand wavings. <laughs> I do it anyway. <laughs> Uh, if you could visualize, in a sense, away from the white crystal solid and into the chemical structure, a great big sort of fuzzy thing that was somewhat negative, I mean that in the sense if you put a positive thing of a magnet, it would go in that direction, uh, and it didn't have well-defined borders, but it was a big, what you call a ring, and then you had a separation in two units, certain distance, from a little tight thing that's very negative, the chemical name for it is a nitrogen atom. So if you had a big ring, fuzzy, and a carbon-carbon and a nitrogen atom, you have a system, a ring ethyl amine, that probably is a skeleton of 90%, 95%. I'm going to take a chance here and head for the P word rather than the E word. Uh, 95% of all the psychedelics have that as a, as, a, uh, as a skeleton of their chemical structure. So the whole question comes in, what is a big fuzzy ring and what does it look like? Uh, can you vary the this, this separation? And what is this little sharp nitrogen like, and what can you do to it? In a very general sense, and I'm, not, I'm talking about 95% of all these, of all these, of these drugs. The big ring over here is usually either a benzene ring or an indole ring. That's it. You get into all kinds of other things. They've made oxygen over there, sulfur's over there, they've made two carbon systems over there, they've put two nitrogens in, the nitrogen to each of the two, no good. 
It's either a benzene ring or an indole ring. There are exceptions, of course, but this is basically it. Two carbons. No, one carbon, you get something that's usually a very funny and a, a peculiar out-of-body nice thing. Some people love out-of-body stuff. I don't care for it. When I want to go to the bathroom, I want to know it's me who wants to go to the bathroom and make it there. Uh, uh, I guess each person has his own his own pace and stride. But I kind of like... That didn't sound right either. Uh, I kind of like uh, being where I know I am, and I, I, I love getting into visual and physical, physio, uh, not physiological, uh, visible uh, imagery, interpretive, erotic occasionally, but not so much, you know, when you get old, can uh, place. But the idea of somehow going out on the astral plane and getting away from there and seeing what the universe is really like from out there, looking back at this poor guy who's lying on a bed somewhere with a full bladder and it's not his concern. Ah, no. Uh, that I can say, that, that's not, that's not, not my, not my pace. Uh, so I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of the old 19th century classic, uh, psychedelic chemist in that the idea of visual, tactile, auditory, all these things are extraordinary and from these I always see the things as being the, the instructive, the informative, the rewarding aspects of it. And I do not personally, I have been out there, do not personally see the reward of having a cosmic picture of something that I'm not quite sure if it, if it applies to me. Okay, the personal. So, uh, I first got in this area, let me give you a little picture. We have this benzene, carbon, carbon, nitrogen, called a phenethylamine. You have indole, carbon, carbon, nitrogen, called a tryptamine. You have a third family that is both an indole, carbon, carbon, nitrogen, and a benzene, carbon, carbon, nitrogen, in the same molecule, usually called an ergoline. And these are basically the three classes of psychedelics. You can take this benzene ring, it's a, it's a fuzzy, almost nice, a negative thing, carbon, carbon, nitrogen, and bang it back onto itself with one more carbon atom, maybe two, whatever it is down there. It's called a tetrahydroisoquinoline, big name, forget it. There are almost none of them known to be psychedelics. You can, <laughs> but no, it's important. Almost all the alkaloids in cacti are those tetrahydroisoquinolines, and they haven't been tasted. I didn't say they weren't psychedelics. I just said they weren't known to be psychedelics. So there's a lot of territory yet to go. Okay, take great big fuzzy aromatic ring system called indole and hook it carbon-carbon to the nitrogen giving you the tryptamine and take that nitrogen and hook it back onto the indole with a carbon atom in there. You have what's called a beta-carboline. Now here they are some active compounds and I want to talk about those. And then as I say, when you have both of them the same molecule, you have the LSD type uh, lysergide family. So that is kind of a hand-waving start. My interest in this area became precipitated very abruptly in the mid-1950s, and much in the same way that uh, Peter's was with, with the mescaline peyote world. And I was exposed to a 400 milligram um, opportunity with uh, uh, mescaline sulfate. Interestingly, my now co-worker, partner, mate, wife, Anne, at almost the same time her first exposure was to peyote. And uh, it happened to be that our, one of the sort of viewers, uh, uh, inspector watchers over me, happened to be the same person that was a watcher over her. And we did not know this for another 15 or 20 years. We didn't know each other. We didn't know the, the one, the one per, each knew the person, but didn't know the other person knew the person. And there was no, no awareness of one another for, what, mid-50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 40-some-odd years. And have been married for 20s, maybe for 20 years, didn't know this. 
So my first experience was mescaline, I don't know, 1952, 53, 54, somewhere in there. And uh, it was a, an experience that completely caught my attention, completely changed my attitude toward who I was and what I did. And uh, I, I think I've talked about it before. I won't get into it too much now. But the, the, the heart of it was I realized that there was an immense amount in me uh, available to me that I couldn't have access to normally. And I suddenly realized the fatuousness of people saying that mescaline taught me this, and I, I think the same in a funny way applies to plants, that the plants taught me this. What it is, you use the plant, you use the compound as a facilitator, as a catalyst to see within yourself what's there. And I think this is the heart of the psychedelic drug. So go back to 1950, whenever it was. And at this point, I wanted to take and cast a picture at that time. We were just getting out of Truman in the World War II, and uh, I just had gotten out of college and into some graduate school somewhere. And I got exposed to this mescaline thing. What was known at that time in the area, God, it wasn't even called, I think they already used the other words, it wasn't called even P words at that time. They had H words and other things back there, hallucinogenics, they had psychotomimetics, they had delusional things, but no one, the, the term psychedelic was not created for another, another 10 years. What was known there? In the phenethylamines, there was mescaline, it had been worked out in Germany, the, the compound had been isolated and structured, not, not, structure is not determined. It had been isolated in the 1890s, Hefter, and it was first synthesized, I believe, by Spett about, nine, eight, not, about 1920 or so. It was a German origin. There was N-N-dimethylmescaline was known. I believe it's called tricocerine. It worked out by a Frenchman who had assayed it in the sense that he had tasted it up to 750 milligrams and got nothing out of it. And that was a known, not active material. MDA was known. It worked out by Gordon Alice, an American. It worked in UCLA as a pharmacologist at UCLA who reported and had synthesized and converted over to Smith, Klein, and French. Smith, Klein, and French, I guess, was the name of the company then, uh, as a possible appetite thing or a stimulant thing, but it's something of central activity. And one report in Canada of TMA, trimethoxyamphetamine, which is mescaline, this thing, ding, ding, bong, that thing, with one more appendix hanging down over here. It's called a methyl group. So it's really a three-carbon chain, but still, the separation between this and this is two carbons. Uh, that's Canadian. In the area of the tryptamines, what was known had DMT had been identified finally as a plant source, although it was synthetic much, much, much earlier, synthesized by Mansky in uh, Canada again, uh, gosh, in the 30s, I believe. But it was known as a plant component, and a person by the name of Steve Zara, with whom I've had a marvelous relationship for about 40 years, uh, had synthesized the N-dihomoethyls, the propyls, the butyls, the amyls, the pyrolidyls, the morpholyls, the piperidyls, whatever it is, a host of these things with, with, I'm, uh, the big thing's small, okay, uh, the big thing's over, the small one, the nitrogen over here has its things, I, I'm right-handed and I, the, I, I'm doing this mirror image to you, uh, the big thing I usually draw on this side of the blackboard and the nitrogen over here, and the, his variations is on the nitrogen. And 5-methoxy-DMT, which has recently become quite uh, well-known for a number of reasons, not uh, the least being the fact that the toad, the dry toad down in Sonora Desert, as opposed to the wet toad that is now in Australia, as elsewhere, has it in its um, uh, gland secretions. Uh, Bufotinine is known, something that which I am still collecting, a remarkable collection of 
of um, reports that is extremely active or it's not active at all. And psilocybin, psilocin, would be tryptamines in the area of the components that have been mentioned frequently in the mushroom area. Carbolines, harmine was known, harmaline is known, tetrahydroharmine was known, and a couple of synthetic things that were not explored, but the other than the basic three H, there's H compounds there, harmine, harmaline, and tetrahydroharmine. That was about the extent of knowledge of the chemistry of the, of the, of the beta-carboline. And in the ergot world, LSD was known, and about 10 synthetic variations of LSD. Again, here are the nitrogens up here. Uh, amide with, instead of diethyl amide LSD, lysergic acid, diethyl amide, dimethyl, methyl ethyl, uh, H2, uh, again, morpholine, pyrrolidine, all kinds of things, all of them less active. So, and also at that time, there was some, uh, recognition of the, of the botanical origins of the, of the Oluluyuki that was mentioned in the Morning Glory Seeds. And so this was again in the Ergoline area. This is what was known. So this is where I started. And I said, you know, gosh, if, if a little bit of mescaline can change my attitude toward myself and be, uh, make me quite so, so dramatically aware of what, how beautiful things are and how clever I am and how intelligent I could be if I could only devote myself to something. Let's devote myself to something. So let's start making some new compounds. So I immediately went and got this Canadian argument of the TMA, the, uh, trimethoxyamphetamine, the tri, the, the you have a benzene ring out here, this fuzzy ring, benzene ring, it's attached this way, it's a bing, bing, it's a hexagon, and it has a methoxy there, methoxy there, methoxy there. That's a tri, three, four, five, trimethoxy, benzene, carbon, carbon, NH2. What they reported in Canada was trimethoxy, benzene, carbon, 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 hanging down, the appendix, the methyl group, the thing that makes it an amphetamine-like chain, NH2. So I had remember my, one of my last points in my first mescaline experience was coming back to the home, my home it lived in Berkeley at the time. Everyone lives at Berkeley about this time in life. Uh, and I had uh, on, the, on, the, on the coffee table in front of the couch a fantastic rose. And I somehow went into that rose. I went to that rose with such completeness. I learned that it indeed was the embodiment of many levels of colors. I had never seen colors as I saw in that experience, and that rose was symbolic of it. I mean, purple is purple, sure. I saw purples up against other colors, and it got up against other colors. The purples became lavender, became violets, became little changes that don't, don't have names. I'm totally, totally seduced by it. I must have looked in that flower for half an hour. About three or four or five weeks later, I actually made, duplicated the, the Canadian synthesis, made trimethoxyamphetamine, and said, all, are all these things really that similar? I took that. I had a little nausea going in. That's very proper. And I took somewhat less of the material because I gathered from the Canadian reports that it was somewhat more potent. And uh, so I, I did get a very interesting experience. And amongst other things, my late wife then had had another rose on that table. And in the course of it, I looked at that at rose with an extraordinary analytical indifference. I looked at it. And the colors were there. They weren't as dramatic as with mescaline. I took it in my hand. I looked at it. And I tore it apart to look inside. Totally shocking different attitude. So, whoops, what is this in me that can dismember a thing to see what makes it work as opposed to appreciate it as a working entity? And so realize, hey, ooh, there's something else inside of me that maybe, not, maybe I'm not the, the, the perfect person I thought I was. You know, there's something in there that I, something to be learned from.
Well, okay. Now, you got that. I, I, I published a note in Nature or Science or somewhere. Nature, I guess it was. Indicating, because we had about three or four more of my friends who explored this, and each of them had some aspect of aggression. One of them got it to uh, a, mo- a thing on the radio. Uh, was slaughtered on Fifth Avenue or Tenth Avenue or something. A, a, a very, very dramatic and a very um, piercing piece of music. And he got quite aggressive. You know, we had a lot of talk to talk him down. With mescaline, this is almost unthinkable. You know, one carbon atom, it's a little appendix, this thing hanging down here. Not only changed the potency a little bit, but it changed the character of this thing quite dramatically. So, you know, good attitude. If one carbon changes this way, it's put two, three, four, five, six, eight. And I just synth- went in the laboratory with a great gusto and I synthesized a variety of appendages hanging down from this, this particular alpha carbon. And of course, alpha ethyl was, was the alpha TMA. Alpha, I made the, God, I make the propyl, the butyl, the amyl, the hexyl. I couldn't find the right nitrosine for the seven. I made the octyl. By the time I had the octyl made, I had actually explored the four carbon thing. The methyl group hanging down had no activity. None at all. I got up to about, about 500 milligrams. Nothing. Didn't want to go any higher. Just didn't feel right. So all of a sudden, I got the lesson that, you know, if three is better than two, one is better than none. Three, if it's not been two, I had this whole host of beautiful compounds, gorgeous white crystals. None of them, I assumed, will be active. Okay. So it didn't work. So what do you do now? Well, the next move I said, you know, the Teutonic mindset. Uh, here's this big, big fuzzy ring over here. I have a three, four, five. How many ways can you put three different methoxy groups onto this fuzzy ring? Well, you can go... 345, 234, 235, 236, 246, 345, six different ways. Make all six of them. Uh, it is now known. I figured a way of making it, and I got into this thing. So I synthesized all these other five positional isomers. And I said, well, how do you determine which is best? Well, at that time, they're getting very red hot about uh, Siamese fighting fish, what's it called, beta splendens or something like that, where fighting fish would sort of put their tail up or float to the bottom of the tank and do something weird with, with, with uh, psychedelics. And spiders, oh, they love spiders spinning webs or funny. And they, this funny web was evidence of a psychedelic action of the compound, so people had these big spider cages with spiders. And I actually, this is the beginning of my first disillusionment in trying to find an animal model for something that is exquisitely a human type of action. So I played there. I did some other work later on. I occasionally, I'm sad to say, would kill a dog. And often would kill mice. The dog was a cardiac dog, and I didn't know him well. But I got to know the mice, and I, I hated running LD50s because... 50 of the animals survive, but 50 you're dead. And what do you do with a dead mouse? I mean, you don't have learned anything. All you know is that this much compound killed a mouse. And so at least the live mice were turned loose in the field and they fed something natural, uh, the ones that survived. And I gave up on mice. So I have not used a mouse or a a dog now probably about uh, 35 years. Why? Uh, the human was a test animal, and I was a test animal, and I tried them on myself, and they, I, would, I would get answers, and uh, sometimes my friends would confirm them, and sometimes they wouldn't. That's fine. Uh, but uh, I had a very, definitely strong uh, ethic that uh, if I was going to ever give it to anyone else or talk about it or other people would use it, I would try it myself and learn exactly what it did to me, and I would at least have that one aspect of an LD, hopefully zero, uh, value. <laughs> 
to build on. So I made these five other isomers with methoxies, and of all the orientations, the two, four, five, and the two, four, six were the only ones that were really active, and they were both very active. So, gosh, you know, the three, four, five nature, nature made the three, four, five mescaline. Why did it choose to make the one that was about the least active of the possible ones? So this got me into a little thought process. Does nature make alkaloids for people's benefit in plants? Or are the plants made for plants' benefits? Or are they defensive? Why do, why do these plants make alkaloids at all? I still, I, people ask me every now and then, you know, tell me, why do plants make alkaloids? Yeah. I had this, maybe it's a garbage can for unwanted nitrogen. Ah, nonsense. Dump it if you don't want it. Uh, maybe it's to, to attract insects that make pheromones that make armpit attractions to other insects so they can mount and do their thing. No. Uh, maybe you can find an example, but generally I have no idea why the world of plants produces alkaloids. They're gorgeous compounds. Some of the most complex rascals you can even imagine are in there, and you find them only as a rule because you either run a crystal test on it and you find an alkaloid positive color test, but more apt you find the, if a dead animal under the plant and he's been eating the leaf and you find there's a poison there. And so there is this action. You often pursue these compounds, act, uh, isolations and identifications on the basis of the fact there's something that goes on there and usually goes on not to a plant but to an animal. And you have this balance. And I found this again and again in nature. Uh, the plant does what the animal needs. The animal does what the plant needs. The plant pees out CO2 and takes in whatever it is. Uh, anim uh, animals pee out. No, it's the other way about. An plants take in CO2 and out goes oxygen. People take in oxygen, take out CO2. Beautiful balance. If you find something that is 2,4 in a plant, you'll find it's 3,4 in animals. If you find something like your carbolines from the methoxies dangling down which hand? Down, down here on the carboline in the plant, it's out here in the carboline in the animal. It's almost as if the two kingdoms were balanced in some, uh, some clever way. And sometimes you get insight of what's going to be active in a person uh, by the basis of what, where the plant did it and do it the other way. So, yes, plants can be teachers, but sometimes in a very oblique manner in which that which is taught is taught by omission or is taught by change and not taught to be duplicated or to be imitated. So what I did, I did as I say, I put these other things. I had the 245 out there and the 246. Uh, along the same uh, general time, I tried less methoxy groups. didn't work. I tried more methoxy groups. It did not. It worked, but not as well. So roughly three oxygens, two or three oxygens was kind of the best out there. Then I said, well, gee, if you have all these methoxy groups, uh, what about making longer, make an eth ethoxy there, or an ethoxy? I said, two, four, five. We're going to work at two, four, five. It's easy to make, straightforward, as potent as they come. The two, four, six is about equivalent. So instead of two, uh, uh, two, four, instead of two, four, five trimethoxy, I put an ethoxy on that. I made monoethoxy, dimethoxy. There's three of those. I made diethoxy, monoethoxy. There's three of those. I made trimethoxy. So I made seven more compounds. Ethoxy is the place of methoxy is here, 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 or all. Uh, you know, another couple weeks work. And <laughs> a couple months work, a few months work. And tasted them. And the only ones that were as or more active were the ones where the four was the four ethoxy. The others were down in activity. So that four had something, and I found the four and its magic will be the nitrogen and its magic in the in the 
cryptamines and will be the nitrogen at the five position of the ergot family and its magic in the LSD type compounds. The other parts of the molecule, okay, go along with the ride or become a little less active or become inactive, but there is a spot in which magic occurs in each of these three families, and that's the spot. You can only find it by experimental trial and error. That's the spot in which you, you express your, your imagination. In the case of the phenethylamines, it was a four position. So, what great things. I put a um, chloro there, I put a nitro group there, I put a bromo group there, I put an iodo group there. Anything I could put out there was fine. But the first thing that occurred to me, if a methoxy in that position, which gave me uh, TMA2, active at about 20 milligrams, that was one of my stumble compounds, I had made uh, something like 8 or 10 milligram trial and had nothing, or or that is 8 milligrams. So I went to 15 milligrams, and my arrogant confidence that I knew it was going on. It, it couldn't be active until it got up to there, you know, somewhere. So I was down here. So after an hour, I doubled the dosage, and I think it took a 24 or something milligrams. I discovered that 12 would have been quite adequate if I had waited another five or ten minutes. And I spent the day in a, in a laundry room watching a washing machine that was not going around go around. It was a... Yeah, um, I, I, I learned a great deal about being humble in, in extrapolating from one structure to another. That was a very instructive. Anyway, what I did, I said, here is an oxygen out here. Without doubt, this thing metabolizes by the methyl group being taken. That's the active position. Methyl group is off. I get a phenol. The phenol conjugates to something or other. It gets excreted. That's how it gets metabolized. What if I were to put the methyl... Yeah. What if I were to put the methyl? I'm sorry. I've not drawn a blackboard from behind the blackboard before. This is this is is interesting. Here, I'm standing behind the blackboard, and I, here's the ring, and here's the chain, and here's the nitrogen. Okay. What if I were to take the oxygen out, nice, you know, wipe it out with 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 a eraser, and put the methyl group right on the ring? Interesting. If the compound gets into whatever the receptor sites. At uh, that time, I still had some sort of a, a naive uh, belief that there's something to do with receptor sites and the action of these drugs. I have gotten rid of that finally. Uh, what, if, you, if, if this thing could get into that type of receptor site, and this point of metabolism was, was very necessary, and this, this thing couldn't be metabolized, that son of a gun would be a very potent compound because it couldn't get rid of it. On the other hand, if it get in the receptor site and block the receptor site and it was not an active compound, then it would block whatever in the body makes you schizzy. Getting from getting in the receptor site and be the perfect prophylactic. So either it's going to be a very potent compound or it's going to be a very good defense against the body's natural tendency to go wonko with too much of this chemical, whatever it is. We'll identify the chemical by identifying the receptor site, by modifying this thing that goes into the receptor site in a way that it either is accepted or it's metabolized and gets out of there. You couldn't lose. Beautiful thing. I like this kind of experiments. So this was instead of 2,5-dimethoxy for methoxy, it was 2,5-dimethoxy for methyl. And since it uh, uh, took the oxygen out and put the methyl on, I called it DOM just to give it a, a set of initials. And it turned out to be an active compound, quite active. In fact, it was, a, it was on the top of my list for potencies for, for a couple, three years. And that was the one, that was my, one of my transition compounds in that it was the, um, about this time I had, I had left Dow Chemical Company for with mutually agreeable separation. Uh, <laughs> that in itself was a story I... I worked for them for 10 I know I worked for them for five years. I was employed by them for 10 years. That, that's a better way of putting it. <laughs> the first five years, I truly worked for them, and uh, I 
invented an insecticide that was one of the first biodegraded ones. They were happy on that. And I was working something else. And their feeling was, since you can invent insecticide by theory, and I invented because I, they had something that was close to physostigmine, that's another story entirely. If that is indeed what you can do, why don't you use that same inventive thing and create something that you're interested in? That's fine. So that was five years free chemical laboratory space for working on psychedelic drugs. And uh, I got about a, a dozen patents out of it, uh, and Dow still has a dozen patents on psychedelics with no knowledge of what to do with them. Uh, but I got I got a dollar for each of them, and that was very that was the standard of the industry at the time. Um, so at that point, I had left left down and gone into into med school over in San Francisco. And this is about the time people were wandering up and down the hate thing, holding hands and having summers of love. And I was walking down the the hate street, memorizing the circles of Woolets, while people coming toward me were stoned on something called STP. And I had no idea what it was. And it turned out STP, which was Initially, the uh, serenity, tranquility, and placidity, and placidity being an unpronounceable and undefinable thing, it became serenity, tranquility, and peace. Then it became uh, stop the police, and then from the police point of view, it became too stupid to puke. And <laughs> in any event, it was called STP. The first thing, this is my, this was my DOM compound. I didn't know it because it was somehow introduced on the street. And my level of, uh, I call it active compound, four or five, six milligrams is quite adequate. Lasts for about 18, 24 hours. Uh, but at that time, it was being put out on 20 milligram tablets. But its effects don't come on for an hour. And people would take the tablet and say, there's nothing there, and take a second tablet. So people were coming into the Haight-Ashbury Clinic with 40 milligrams on board on something that five milligrams is quite adequate, and there were some very, very difficult times. And I was innocently doing what you do up in the, up in the Parnassus Avenue there. And I was unaware for until about six months later that the materials STP was the DOM compound that I had had. And that, I had big, big supply of Dow, but that was intact. I don't know where it came from. But there it was. Anyway, so this was the direction that went. An interesting happened about that time. I was thinking about, back to my old appendix, one carbon, two carbon thing. I said, since this compound was totally different type of activity, long lived and different style, maybe it has other actions. So I put an ethyl group on it. And, what's my, I go to 10, I go to 1030? Yeah, okay. Um, so I put an ethyl group on that, and I said, this is not, probably not going to be a psychedelic, but it may be centrally active. And, uh, I've tried it. I was working quite closely with Claudio Naranjo, who was down in Chile at that time, and he put it into about a dozen of his rather agitated and depressed patients, and all of them undepressed. And so we had what could very well be an antidepressant here, before really antidepressants were much in popularity. And Bristol, I happened to be uh, talking to Bristol, I gave a talk at a, at a Gordon Research Conference, and the head of research of Bristol was the secretary there, and I gave this talk. He said, why don't you give some to us to Bristol? We'll try it out. We'll see on our animals what it does. And uh, so I gave him a, a supply of this. I had called it Ariadne just because I was in that kind of a mood. And I uh, gave, gave him a sample, Bristol, and they finally found an animal test in which it showed an action that they could define as being antidepressant. I think it caused monkeys to run mazes more readily or something. And then they also kept finding, they wanted to prove it was not hallucinogenic. And they found that, I think it was either DOM or Mescal, made a cat's tail go up like this and get all fuzzy. They called it a Halloween cat's tail. <laughs> and uh, this compound did not make the ha- cat's tail go up and go fuzzy. So they used that to the FDA as evidence that it was not a hallucinogen, which I think... Uh, and uh, the FDA said, okay, sounds good to us. And they gave a... a Gave a, things were different in those days. Uh, gave a uh, IND, it's called an IND to Bristol to try it in human clinical studies, and the Bristol promptly did so. Uh, 
Uh, but that was a little aside. That was an interesting thing, but Bristol, I was not interested in antidepressants. I was interested in things that would, would serve as exposures to the, to the, of the human mind to itself. And so I went, I continued with my own, my own work. And I mentioned that, but where the methyl was, chlorines, bromines, iodines, uh, then I got the idea, let's go back to the, this is, all these were with this little methyl group hanging down. Got rid of the methyl group, go back to the phenethylamines themselves, and I went through a lot of these things. I tried, uh, that two carbon system, and the one that really has, uh, now has achieved a fair amount of notoriety is putting the bromo group in that four position with the two carbon chain. It's a thing called, uh, 2CB, and it got quite popular in Europe and then in this country and became illegal, which is a pattern that I have seen occur before. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, another one in the same area was exploring with methyl groups on the nitrogen. This is out of this part of the nitrogen. The dimethyl I mentioned very early, trichosterene, was not active. I put methyl groups on a host of other psychedelics. All cases, the activity dropped away and the compounds became quite different and quite uninteresting. The one exception was that one of the compounds that was known at that time that I first got into this area in the 50s was MDA and putting a methyl group on there produced a compound called MDMA and it was quite different but it was not a, a disappointment. And that, of course is another story of another time. <laughs> okay, the phenethylamines are still alive and going. Uh, there are lots of things that can be done. That four position, that four position is still a magic, magic place. I've, I've put, one thing I'm really, it's a marvelous thing, I'd love to have time to do it, but I'm into tryptamines and other things now, but I'll get back to it someday, is uh, using the Teflon argument. If you, for example, you say, well, I'll put something that's very polar out there, a nitro group or maybe an alcohol or an acid or something. And if it gets into this so-called receptor site and where that thing dangles, it's attracted to something that wants a polar thing, it'll go this way. If you put in a very negative, lipophilic, fat-loving thing like a, like an alkyl choke, it'll be repelled. It'll go that way and go down that way. If you put something like Teflon in there, Teflon is neither likes water nor does it like fat. It doesn't like anything. So suddenly you're putting something into that receptor site that never is not going to go up or go down. It's just going to get in the way of something and not be attracted at all. So I put a trifluoromethyl group out there. That's trifluoromethyl is a one-carbon Teflon. And the damn thing is not only is it interesting, it's the most potent phenethylamine yet made. The thing is active at not much over a milligram, and the amphetamine is active at less than a milligram. Fantastic. So what about putting a tripentafluoroethyl, put out a heptafluoropropyl. Let's put out bigger and bigger Teflons out there. What's going to happen? I don't know. This is exactly what I love about chemistry. I have no idea. Every time you turn around, you get a question that suddenly, if you're honest with yourself, I have no idea what's going to happen. It could be extremely potent. It could be extremely selective. It could be extremely damaging. It could be extraordinarily effective as a tool in this way. Or it could fry a neuron. You don't know. And, And you won't know until you make the compound... A little bit salty, but it crunches between the teeth, but it's okay. Try it. See how it feels. Record what goes on. Settle back for a couple, three days and gather your notes and see, is it worth going on? Is it a lead that's worthwhile? Does it make sense? Can you use the information anyway in the human study of the human mind? Can you use the information in any way in designing other tools that might be effective in the human mind? Okay, I'm going to go back to the second of these. This is the, the ring out here. There's an indole carbon, carbon, nitrogen, tryptamine. Uh, tryptamines, as I mentioned, Sara had made a host of these things, all alkyl groups. It turns out on the, on the aromatic ring, nothing 
a four oxygen, a five oxygen, and that's it. There's no variety out there at all. You can have a five methoxy, that this is the five methoxy DMT world, five hydroxy, the bufotenine world, four hydroxy, the psilocybin silicin world, no hydroxy, no oxygen. This is just the plain tryptamine world. On the chain, a little bit of play can be had. Again, a one carbon dingler or a no carbon dingler, two carbon or two carbon with one hanging. But the nitrogen is the area where all the, the versatility, the flexibility, the excitement can occur. So I, I said, why not? Let's make a whole bunch of these with different things out in the nitrogen, which I did. And you get into things, one of the most remarkable things, again, uh, trick me, I, Sarah made the diethyl, dipropyl, dibutyl, diamyl, the pyrolidyl, the piperidyl, and the morpholine. Don't take notes, there'll be no quiz on this. Uh, the morpholine, okay. So I said, what about making uh, some other kinds of groups out there? So I made a diisopropyl group. And there's a diisopropyl, no, di, yeah, that's right, diisopropyl. So now you have NN diisopropyl tryptamine, or NN, or just DIPT. And this was a most unusual compound. It, it, it had an action that I have not seen anywhere else and not found in any other compound. And that is, I, I have had 40 milligrams. I'm not getting any effect, you know, 10, 20 usual scaling up, 40 milligrams. And I was pounding through the house getting a cup of coffee. And uh, Hoosie's uh, Young People's Guide to the Symphony was on the, on the radio. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I mean, and musically it's good, not the way it's being performed. So, you know, who, who, who let the amateurs at San Jose or wherever it was record this and play it on a major news, news, uh, radio music station? I listened through it. Everything was out of tune. The timpani even was out of tune. The fiddles were out of tune. They even played these large musical string chords. They were out of tune. And it turned out that the ear, somewhere in there, was taking in the information, it was getting to the back of the head, going whatever association goes on there, out to the, wherever the sides are interpreted. And somewhere along that line, things are getting screwed up. This ear was the same as that ear. So it probably wasn't an ear damage. And it, the music was going in, but it was, it was not like you're putting your finger on the side of a record and slowing everything down. It was that you were distorting the harmonic integrity of what you're hearing. Wow. Uh, subsequently, this, 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 uh, an auditory, so no visuals. No interpretive things, no colors, strictly auditory screw up. And so, on this, on this basis, it has been now tried by a person unnamed with two people, both with perfect pitch. Uh, one was with a striking instrument, I think it was a harpsichord. The other was with a sine wave generator, which takes all weird harmonics out of the picture. And the person would take, on separate occasions, each of these two people, and before, check this note, check that note, E above middle C, B flat, uh, notes, and what the note really was and what the note was said to be was a measure of the accuracy of the a thing. Beautiful bass line. Dick, 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 dick. Then about 30 minutes into the, into the thing, the error grew, grew very badly this way, and then it began closing off again, and pretty soon became no error again. So for the first time, A, you had a quasi- objective measure of the time course and the qualitative nature course of a, of a psychedelic. Not a psychedelic. What is it? It's, a, it's an auditory distortant. But a beautiful thing, almost almost objective, because obviously the person had no idea what the note really was. He said what the note sounded like to him, and he said so. Both people had the same distortion, same time course at 40 milligrams. Subsequently, no, one was at 40 milligrams, one was 100 milligrams. No, no visual. So I have taken that as a lead. I make the isopropyl, make the ethyl isopropyl, make the propyl isopropyl, make the propyl. I got a lot of interesting new chemistry coming out of it. You know, all things close, things that had the same shrubbery mass. Not there. So something very weird about that specific compound. I subsequently made the compound with the 5-methoxy five methoxy group, 
and the NN diisopropyl, very much like 2CB, a light intoxicant, short-lived, no auditory distortions at all, a very interesting compound, another humble lesson, just because this does it here, this is just not going to, 5-methoxy is not going to make it more potent, it's going to change the character. Every compound is unique. You can say, this looks like that, this is related to that, this appears to be an analog of that along this line. Prepare to be surprised. It's going to be something a little unexpected, and it may be very unexpected. I have never found another one that had that particular auditory uh, change. But look, look at the possibilities. I now know how to make dialkyl substitution in that nitrogen of any kind I want. But let's take, for example, you have methyl, ethyl, propyl, butyl, isobutyl, secondary butyl, isopropyl, uh, amyl. Forget the other isomers, amyl. Put on a hexo out there for good luck. And maybe something else. And then you make another axis for the other group, and you have methyl, ethyl, what do you have? Ten by ten, a hundred compounds could be made in the course one a day. There's no reason you you take more than a day to make each. Take maybe four days to prove that you're right and you got what you think you. A hundred compounds of which I would say 85 are new. Unknown. This is why this damn thing's so exciting. Any one of those could be a very specific thing for the color red. Could be a very specific thing for this particular sound range of change. Could be a very specific thing for assaying this particular part of the personality, such as self-image or uh, faith in 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 the, in the church or who knows what. You could very well touch some peculiar human thing with one of these materials unpredictably, and you can only tie it by finding. You're not going to you're not going to find self-image changes and, and faith in, in the Catholic Church in experimental rats. It just, it's just not going to work. So, anyway, what else do you have? The 5-methoxy I've mentioned, uh, it generally amplifies the potency of the compound. Uh, six, seven positions are of no interest in the tryptamine area. At least I've found nothing of interest so far. And the one thoroughly, thoroughly dramatic thing that was known, worked out by, by um, uh, Albert Hoffman, was the uh, structure of psilocin and, and psilocybin, both of which from the, were exclusively from the mushroom world, uh, specifically very narrow portion of the mushroom world, all with an oxygen on the four position of this particular thing, and all of them orally active, which is quite an unusual thing. I was talking to someone in the lobby uh, during one of the many discussions and um, conversations in the lobby on this is the story of the isolation and the identification of the, of the structure of psilocybin Silasen by Hoffman. It's a good example of you know, this direct outgrowth of a person who sent me a, a piece of peculiar plant and asked me that question, which I despise, but I am always gracious to say I don't think I can. What's in it? Here's an interesting plant. What's in it? I taught a course over in Berkeley for about 15 or 20 years called Forensic Toxicology. And I told them, no matter how powerful and important your boss is, if he hands you a sample they've seized on the street, he says, what's in it? Ask him to rephrase the question. Is cocaine in it? Is heroin in it? Does it contain this? Does it contain that? Fine, that's answerable. What's in it? Maybe a 30-year futile task. Because you may never find out what's in it, because you don't know what the heck you're looking for. And so this is exactly what happened. The mushrooms came out of Mexico. The story has been told several times. It'll be told again. But the story of, of, of Hoffman in the laboratory with a little bit of, the, of this mushroom thing, Hein, 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 one of Hein, I think it was, in France, took rats as a test animal, make this extract, that extract, into the rat, looked at the rat, did another extract, into the rat, looked at the rat, and in essence found nothing, could not find what was going on. Hoffman, very simply, took the material, verified it was active, Divided into this and that fraction, I think one was a fat soluble, one was a fat insoluble. Ate this one, and then three days later, ate this one. Here's where the activity is. Good. Then you take this, and you fractionate it this way, that way. He ran it on, a, I think, a chromatographic separation into ten 
one zero to one point one point one to point two up to point nine to one oh and on Thursday eight to zero to point one and on the following Tuesday eight to point one to point two and here's where the activity was. And so you get at it, you follow the activity in the only animal species that shows that activity. And he found it here it was, it's an alkaloid, turned out to be silicin. He spent about a week and a half the lab synthesized it. Fine. Spent a long time and got the phosphate ester, which is psilocybin, and the compound was identified and it turns out to be the right compound. But you have to know what you're looking for. You have to be able to follow some way of shining light on what you are separating and where the interesting component of that separation is. And in the case of things that's only active in man, only man can be your test animal. So that was a little story on, on psilocybin. Where am I? Psilocybin. This mounts on. Why am I using notes? I can't follow notes. Uh, uh, one interesting thing that came up in the uh, in tryptamines, I'm, not, I'm still in the tryptamines for some reason, yeah. And tryptamines, and uh, I mentioned 5-methoxy-DMT. This is material that recently got into quite a bit of, of popularity, notoriety, what have you, as being um, the uh, the Bufa albaris, uh, the uh, river, they actually called Sonora toad, I guess, or the Colorado River toad. And this is the one that got into um, Australia. Australia, as I think I have said in previous talks somewhere, has a knack of bringing in a new problem every 10 years to solve an old problem. And in 10 years, a new problem has become a, a new problem. And the solution has become a new problem, and you bring in something else. I think they did this with rabbits or with dogs or something or other. And then they had they brought in sugar cane. The cane had beetles. They brought in uh, toads to eat the beetles. And the trouble is they got toads that are down here and the beetles up here, and the toads couldn't get the beetles, but there's no natural enemy for the toads, so they began reproducing throughout northeast Australia. And they, they are now everywhere in northeastern Australia, and they're now working on a virus of some kind in South America that is specific against this toad. Uh, I said this too, I was in, in Sydney about a, three or four months ago, and I was in a toad exhibit, a frog exhibit, right, the Natural History, uh, History Museum. And this little lady, I love saying things spontaneously alongside little old ladies because they never know, a lot of people don't know if I'm kidding or not. And they, you get away with, you get away with murder when you can, when you can search me. Did you realize that? You know, God, they believe whatever you say is murder. Um, anyway, I was looking at this thing and they were talking about this, this, uh, that was the Bufo Marinus. They brought the wrong toad in. Um, Bufo Marinus, oh, they had a marvelous, um, documentary. I'm, I'm off the wall. I'll come back in a moment. I had a marvelous documentary shown, uh, on American TV on this particular toad and how it became such a mess in Australia. And they had pictures, people saying you get extra points if you drive your car and get them from in front and get them head on because they explode by the captured air and you get points if you get loud noises. You don't get points. Hey, it's, 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 Human animals sometimes a, a strange thing. Anyway, uh, what this woman is looking at this toad thing, they talk about the toads that come in, they can't get the sugar cane beetles, but the toads are getting out of control. And they had a note down there saying that this virus is being developed that is specific against the toad. I said, you know, I wonder if that's the same virus. I said, just loud enough for here to hear. That they are wondering if it might cause some form of aplastic anemia in wallabies in 10 years. She gave me this look. I, I don't, uh, uh, she walked away. I mean, that's a great compliment, I guess. Uh, anyway, the, uh, the toad, the other toad, the dry toad, the Sonora toad, the uh, Alvarius toad, has a secretion, has 5-methoxy-DMT. Indeed, you take the toad and you massage the product gland against a piece of glass and it squirts out and it dries up. And you put it down like a little ball of rubber cement and put it into a little pipe and smoke it. And about uh, 
20 milligrams per little rubber ball of cement of 5-methoxy-DMT is quite an effective charge. It's very quickly there. Some people love it. Some people despise it. Very few people like dislike it enough not to try it a second time, which speaks well for a psychedelic. Anyway, this is an example of, a, of an unexpected uh, treasure of the tryptamine area from, from um, animal sources. And uh, so uh, sometimes I think animals may be good teachers too. Okay, carbolines. I'm getting near the end. I still have 18 minutes. Um, carbolines are this indole thing, two carbons, nitrogen with the nitrogen stuck around back on the indole with another carbon called beta-carbolines. Uh, if they have a methyl group dangling off that bottom of that carbon down below uh, that the one that stuck on there, it has a name that begins with H-A-R-M. H-A-R-M is the beginning of a name, means there's a methyl group in the one position. It's a nice equation to have. So you have harmine, harmaline, harmalol, tetrahydroharmine, tetrahydroharman, harman, all harmalan, all those harm things have a methyl group down here. The carboline itself usually is just called a carboline. Uh, Jace gave a very nice story when he's exploring 300 milligrams of of beta, of, 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 uh, God, what was he into? Harmaline, harmaline itself, in which he described the phenomena of, of puking between his knees while sitting on the toilet. Uh, I can, I, I think I came out a little bit more lucky than he. Uh, my highest try on just plain harmaline was 250 milligrams as a hydrochloride salt. And I had, I was sitting on the couch and I was, I had three things going at once. And fortunately, they didn't get in one another's way, but not by much. One was, I was trying my best. If this is a psychedelic, if I can get visions, let's just get a vision. Close my eyes, get a vision, vision, get a vision. And so I, I got this pair of eyes. Okay, hey, we're on our way. Uh, keep at it. I wasn't feeling too well. Uh, things were not right, but I'm going I'm to get a vision. And I got a mouth, right place. And now if I can only get a nose, I might know who I'm looking at. And with a little bit of effort, I got a nose, and it came in upside down. So I had eyes, nose, mouth, and diarrhea. <laughs> but fortunately, my, my, my nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea were not at the same time. They alternated with great grace. And I managed to, to, um, I managed to, to keep sanitary in a sense as well. It was not a successful thing. And I will avow a confirmation of those people who say harmaline has activity, but it's best to be used at somewhat lower levels as a monamine oxidase inhibitor of those things that are normally not active without its being present. What an interesting thing grows out of harmaline in an entirely different way. This is what's known as a ram. That's why I don't... Okay. Uh, a thing came out of harmaline in quite a different way. I was asked by a person about a year ago, What's the ratio of harmine to harmaline in Piganum harmala seeds? Well, gee, I don't know. Uh, so I got some Piganum harmala seeds, ground them up, poured a little bicarb, ground it up a little dichlor, evaporated the dichlor, put a little 90-10 butanol, no, toluene butanol, stuck a two, maybe three micrograms in the GCMS, and got this beautiful pair of peaks. And here's harmine, and here's harmaline, or the other way about it, I forget which. And this whole thing led to a number of rather interesting little ramifications. First of all, the first thing said, let's be a scientist. Let's be systematic. I will get my reference sample of harmine and make sure this harmine, which looks like harmine, that probably is harmine, is harmine. So I injected pure harmine. There it was. Nice, nice, no problem. Then I said, let's make sure the harmaline that I have over here is pure harmaline. 
It is harmaline. So I got my reference sample of harmaline and injected the, injected the sample, and I got bloop, bloop, two peaks. Whoops. Uh, so I looked at my harmaline. Merck Company, 1920-something or other, harmaline hydrochloride. The lot number was on there. Everything's on there. It was about a third harmine. So what happens? It was dirty to start with. Harmaline goes to harmine with time. My machine is doing something weird. So I got a sample from Sigma Chemical Company of currently made harmaline, one peak. So I wrote to Merck. I said, dear Mr. Merck, please tell me, uh, here's a lot number. Here's a control number. Here's the date of its manufacture. It's a label that was only used by you between 1924 and 1928 or something. What is there, was your quality control to know there was no harm, harmine in your harmaline? Or how do you, did you distinguish between them at that time? I would like to know because I'm finding your harmaline at that time, or would we know, uh, to be uh, 30% harmine. Got back this gorgeous letter which said we have never offered that sample commercially. Okay. Uh, that, so, so that didn't help. So I wrote, wrote to Boo Homestead. He said, well, he had gotten a sample of, of Banisteriopsis that, that uh, uh, was left on the shores of somewhere down there in the Rio Negro or the Orinoco or somewhere down there in 14, 1842 or something. Had stood for a while and got over to the Kew Gardens and Schultes, uh, Dick Schultes made it available to him. And at that time, it was Banisteriopsis, both alkaloids. He asked that it was only harmine, so he deduced that harmine went to harmine with time. And it was an age change thing. Well, I'm not going to wait 100 years and see if this gets worse. And how do you accelerate an age change? Is it light? Is it UV light? Is it air? Is it moisture? I don't know. So it's still, to me, it's an unanswered question. What bothers me a little bit is that all of the harmaline, this is years and years and years ago, that was used by Claudio Naranjo in all of his studies that led to his marvelous book, one chapter of which was the use of and study of harmaline in human subjects in psychotherapy, was from that bottle. So is it possible that a lot of the work that's reported for harmaline is also harmine or only harmine or due to harmine? Uh, you can't repair a thing like that. All you can do is say, when you find something in the literature and it sounds okay, as some said just by, by Peter First last time, hang on, there'll be something in about 10 years that'll make it not okay. You don't know the final answers. You have to kind of roll with it as you go. So uh, I made a number of different carbolines. I made carbolines that looked like things that came out of Oh, another, this, for the, the pure, the beautiful chemists in this whole, uh, in the area would love this. My first working with, with, uh, with Harmony many years ago, I just had access to a brand new state-of-the-art 60 megacycle NMR. So I dissolved the harmaline in heavy water. I put an NMR so I get all the, look at the methyl group down here, methoxy group out there, and all the hydrogens in the thing. There was no methyl group down at the, down, hanging down on the one position. And harmaline has a methyl group there. Was my harmaline wrong then? Has, could Emil Fisher have been wrong and gotten the wrong structure for harmaline? Not likely. It's been about 50 years and everyone kind of agrees with him. So I began looking. It turns out, pure for the pure fun of the chemistry of it, that those hydrogens on that methyl group exchange with heavy water that become deuteriums and becomes invisible. So one simple thing, like dissolving a sample in a solvent and running a spectrum on it, gave it totally wrong spectrum because I didn't have the wit to think through the fact that uh, one part of the molecule would be exchanging in water with something that could only be seen in an NMR. Fabulous. Every time you turn around, you think you have an answer and you're wrong. Anyway, uh, the, the bottom, the last of this group I want to talk about would be really the Lysergides. They were known at that time. This is the LSD. Uh, I think I had a big argument with someone early yesterday morning out in the lobby, or maybe noontime in the lobby, on LSD being 
a natural product. It's not a natural product. It's not. Settle, settle that rumor and myth once and for all. LSD is not known in nature. It is not a plant component. It is a laboratory component. Lysergic acid, isolysergic acid, a whole host of beautiful polypeptide amides, different substitution patterns are known. Simple amides are known. But not lysergic acid diethyl amide itself. That's a laboratory material. It's natural if you consider Albert Hoffman natural, just like STP is natural if you consider me natural, but it's not a plant product, and so it cannot be put into quite that category. Okay, at that time, a host of compounds had been made in imitation of LSD, and almost all of them at that time were ground out because they were assaying things in Sandoz pharmaceutical laboratories. You put a dipropyl group on there. You put this group... Uh, it's up here. The nitrogen's up here now because we have a we have an indole with a nitrogen. We have a phenethylamine with a nitrogen, same nitrogen. And that nitrogen up there happens to be in the all by itself called the five position, and that has a methyl group on it. But everyone pays attention to the carboxyamide up here at the what's it? What five, six, seven, eight? The eight carbon, the carboxy up there. And you make the diethylamide, the dimethylamide, the hydrogen, dihydrogenamide, the methyl, methyl hydrogen, the ethyl hydrogen, the methyl ethyl. They made probably a 10, maybe 15 amides of the, everyone was less potent than LSD in human studies. Everyone. And so people said, gee, LSD is the, is the ultimate compound. That is it. It is the perfect answer to this area of psychotomimetic. At that time, it's still called psychotomimetic psychedelic drugs. And then a very interesting little study was made. Again, I'm not the only one doing this work. A lot of people are, and there's a lot of work being published. You should be attentive to the literature. It's all the time coming out there. A series of compounds in which that methyl group up there was changed. It was taken off by a very obscure method to form what's called nor-LSD. And then an ethyl group was put on. So really, it is nor-n-ethyl nor-LSD. All it is is LSD with a two-carbon instead of a one-carbon thing sticking out there. Damn thing's twice as potent as LSD. Very hard to make, but it's twice as potent. So all of a sudden, LSD is not the most active of the psychedelic compounds by any means. It has a shorter action. It doesn't have quite the magic, uh, um, colorful sparkle of LSD, but it's a very thorough psychedelic. So ethyl, allyl, butyl, benzyl, you know, you, you, once you find a spot where changes occur and they're not all negative, you start peppering all kinds of things in there. And indeed, it turns out ethyl is the most active of them, but the propyl is active, the allyl is active, the, the propino is active, uh, the propargyl is active, the butyl has some activities down, and that's, that's the limit of it. But there are another six or eight compounds up there, and it's, ho it's a dramatic, dramatic opening of an area to begin exploring again. Uh, other things could be modified in the LSD molecule. LSD has a way of being this way and this way if you make it this way, or this way, or this way. The other three isomers, the stereoisomers, they're all inactive. So LSD itself is by itself, has the only active configuration of what's called stereoisomeric um, orientation. A very popular thing back approximately in the 60s became all of a sudden M MGS. Everyone was talking about MGS. Herb Cain had a column dedicated totally to MGS, the latest something or other. Morning Glory Seeds. And uh, someone had, had published, I think, one of the early psychedelic review uh, papers, uh, things about Oluyuki. At that time, everyone uh, was learning the word of Ipamia with all kinds of marvelous common names and, and uh, uh, species. 
uh, I remember I did some very early work with Rivia Rivia Corombosa, a little black uh, seed, the shape of a, of a, of a, of a rice grain, it had gorgeous flowers, and contained the ergot alkaloids. Uh, then all of a sudden, someone discovered the uh, the baby Hawaiian wood rose, superb support uh, source of of the, uh, these ergot alkaloids, and they had activity. They were amides, but they were not LSD. I remember a very interesting situation where I was at a trial, uh, asked to be an expert witness this time for the defense, a trial up in Mendocino, in which there was a uh, a one liter round bottom flask that was half full of black goop, of black viscous goop, and the, uh, the the prosecution said this is LSD. And this person is making LSD. And the defense lawyer said, this is no LSD in there. It's not LSD. I didn't know what the, the guy was doing. But he's certainly not making LSD. And so I was brought in as defense witness. A fellow by the name of, what was his name? Best was brought in as a prosecution witness. And they, they said to us very simply, very simple. The judge said to us in the presence of the jury, gentlemen, you're both experts. One of you, Best, leans largely toward the prosecution as, as uh, your orientation. The other of you, me, leads largely toward the defense as your orientation. The question is, is there LSD in here? Why don't we take this bottle and pour it into two halves? You take one, you take the other, go away, and come back next Monday and tell us if there's LSD in there. Marvelous. If that's the way things should go. And I said, now, one precaution. He says, don't talk to each other. No communication between the two of you. And you'll come into court without knowing what the other one has said. Okay, sure. I, I, as far as I was concerned, if it was there, we'd both find it. If it wasn't there, neither of us would find it. There's no, no problem at all. So we went back. Boy, I don't know about him, but I worked like fury on that thing. I had about one weekend plus a day to see if there was or was not LSD in there. And I have a feeling he was working like fury over at the DEA lab in San Francisco. We went back, went back up there. We met in the parking lot. Didn't say a word. We went back in. We brought our little bottles back with us. And the judge, I, I think I waited in the hall. He went and gave his report. Then he came out in the hall, looked at me. No way did I get one hint of communication from that look he gave to me. No way at all. He's being playing it very straight. I went in and gave my thing. Neither of us found LSD. The guy, the judge, threw the whole thing out. The humorous part was the thing was loaded with lysergic acid. Interesting. But they never asked that question. They just said, was LSD in there? And the answer was no. It happened to be allergic acid. It's also Schedule One drug or Schedule Three or something or other. They never asked the question. And there's enough peptides in there. There was this hydrolyzed morning glory seed. There's no question about it. Later on, uh, Jimmy and I uh, had a beer down at the place. What, there's a, a beer house down uh, Hop, Hoplands uh, Wood, a town down the road from from Mendocino. And we were discussing what we had found, how we had done it. And we were trying to determine which morning glory seeds had been used. We, we both have found this. We found the evidence. And we're discussing the whole thing. We're very grateful the question was asked the way it was. We were good friends before. We're still, he's now dead, but we were good friends for many years after that. But yes, morning glory seeds not only contain ergots of very interesting sorts, but they can be converted to allergic acid, which in turn can be converted to LSD. And anyone who has a, a catalog from... Um, uh, what's it called, that place up in Washington, uh, Lumpanics, can do about 16 recipes that tells you how to do it. I wouldn't trust them very much, but at least you can get the recipes. So that is kind of a, a hand-waving romp through the, through the non-slide, non-blackboard area of phenethylamines and, and uh, tryptamines. All I can say in sort of winding up is it's been a fascinating 40 years, and I sure hope I get those 40 years. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Okay, so here's my fantasy. Copies of this talk by Sasha Shulgin get somehow included as a standard feature of every chemistry set sold to children all over the world. And it's also played during the first chemistry class each year in high school and university. And after hundreds of thousands of budding young chemists are inspired to explore psychedelic chemistry, well, uh, maybe they'll find a magic pill that simply makes people be nice. I happen to believe that uh, there's never been a human being who wasn't nice at one point in their life. I've even been nice uh, myself from time to time. But it would sure help me get through those grumpy times with a magical nice pill. Oh, wait, uh, we do have something like that. It's called cannabis. <laughs> and I guess that this is kind of a rude way to make a comment after the wonderful talk by Sasha Shulgin that we just listened to. After uh, hearing Ken speak last week and uh, then hearing Sasha today, well, it makes me feel good that, with luck, my grandchildren will also get to hear them one day as well. You know, I've met quite a few chemists in my life, but not one of them ever came close to his or her excitement about chemistry as did Sasha. Even in private, when he was talking about chemistry, he was every bit as animated as what he was when he gave the talk that we just listened to. And did you catch the fact that he began his inquiries into the properties of psychedelic molecules a good decade before the word psychedelic was even coined? <laughs> what a wonderful man he was, as was Muhammad Ali. We have really been fortunate to have had them among us for as long as we did. Now it's our turn to find ways in which we can honor their memories. But for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>